Hello and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor and this is the podcast where I interview a different editor each week. This week, my guest is author and editor Alex Christoffi. Alex is an editor of non-fiction at One World, where he's published books like A Field Guide to the English Clergy, as well as what the TLS has called the decade's most important book, The Panama Papers. Alex is also the author of novels Let Us Be True and Glass, which won the 2016 Betty Trask Prize, so he's going to be telling us about the relationship between writing and editing. And stay tuned to hear Alex reveal the three questions every aspiring author of non-fiction should ask themselves before sending their book to a publisher. As always, stay until the end for a preview of next week's episode and enjoy. So for anyone who's not aware, can you tell us a little bit about One World and, and your, your uh, role there? Yeah, sure. So um, One World was founded about 32 years ago by uh, a couple, Juliet and Naveen. Um, Juliet maybe and Naveen Dustar. And um, I think originally that the idea was that they would just focus exclusively on nonfiction. They, they really liked the idea of kind of bridging the gap between academic... Um, uh, new academic discoveries and the kind of latest knowledge in in academic fields and kind of bringing it to the general readership and the trade, mm. which wasn't being done in any kind of particularly concerted way in the trade industry at that time. Um, and obviously, you know, in the last 30 years, that's one of the areas that's really blossomed. Yeah, massive. With, that's kind of yeah, smart I mean, thinking or serious nonfiction. Profile, Bloomsbury, uh, there are loads of companies that do it well. Um, but that was how One World started out. Um, and that was you know, for the same reason they founded their Beginner's Guide series as well, mm. which is uh, one of our, one of the areas that sort of just keeps ticking over for us. We've, I think we've got over 100 uh, Beginner's Guides. Wow. Now. So it's probably the biggest of those series other than maybe, maybe the very short introductions with OUP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about six, seven years ago... Um, they decided to do fiction that a couple of years before that they decided that they they wanted to expand in a much more conscious way so they moved to london they um started off at that point they had maybe eight people and they started to to grow properly so they there's now 22 well wow. um and in the seven years that we've been doing fiction now um it's it's been a I think it's exceeded expectations. You could say <laughs> I can, I can sort of, uh, I can blow the trumpet about that because I don't have anything to do with it. But it's, <laughs> it's been doing really well. So you're, uh, you're, you publish exclusively nonfiction there. I publish nonfiction there. Yeah. Just, um, but what, just for the sake, what kind of novels might people, might people know One World for? Um, so we uh, happened to win the Booker Prize twice <laughs> in a row, uh, which I think everyone was just over the moon about so the sellout by paul Beatty and uh, a brief history of seven killings by marlon james mm. um were in in two subsequent years and um other than that we've um just brought out uh, a mouthful of birds by samantha shrublin who um she had a, a a novella um last year which was uh shortlisted for the booker international prize um a book called frankenstein in baghdad which um has been out in the bookshops last year and is just coming into paperback now. Um, I think what Juliet focuses on mainly is um, is kind of 
really good quality literary fiction um either from the states or translated a lot of it um and she's started to to kind of try to grow uh uk writers as well so and so you uh you're the senior commissioning out there uh, working exclusively in non-fiction how many books would you say you you do a year what kind what kind of size is the team i publish about 12 a year um i think my my colleague sam carter does um maybe a bit more than 12 a year but he's um so he publishes mainly on history uh hard science uh he's done quite a bit of uh arts and nature um and linguistics kind of poppy linguistic stuff pop maths um most of my list is current affairs big ideas uh technology um and a bit of the sort of pop philosophy sort of stuff social sciences so a, a bit a bit of the sort of softer sciences mm. and uh i would say kind of really mainly contemporary I, I don't do very much history great thank you um but you started uh started life as in in publishing as an agent at yep. convin walsh um how did that come about did you have a kind of traditional route into publishing uh did you stumble into it yeah i mean it felt like uh i think at the time you always feel like you're kind of going out on a limb and doing trying to do this thing like knock down a door that no one's ever knocked down before but Mm. you know in hindsight it was about as traditional as it gets (laughs) I did an English degree yeah I kept bothering people until they gave me work experience I off the back of the work experience I managed to get the work references I needed to get the job so it it probably was a lot more conventional than it felt like at the time Mm -hmm. um I was trying really hard to make myself useful in in random house doing bits of you know temp work I I proofread erotica i ran a blog for a, the launch of a sort of financial crash book wow. um and that you know that was at a time when you know blogs were if you could run a blog you were basically a wizard yeah um and uh so i i kind of just did whatever you know anything that they they had a gap for just mm. to keep myself in the office and and talking to the people who were um who were going to be able to you know, tip me off about job opportunities. Yeah, and did you kind of join Conovan Walsh as an assistant and work your way up? Yeah, so I joined as um, the assistant to Patrick Walsh, who's a non-fiction agent primarily. He does do fiction as well, um, so he does probably, I guess, maybe seventy percent non-fiction. Right. So he was one of the two directors of the company at the time, and they had this lovely little office in Soho. There were about ten people. Um, it was very, very tall and very, very narrow, and it was above a pub. <laughs> and people brought their dogs into the office there were sometimes blissful yeah i would say at, like at any given time maybe 40 percent of the inhabitants of the office were dogs that's a pretty good ratio yeah uh there was a little tiny italian greyhound that used to come and sit on my lap while i i you know what's <laughs> been hard to leave yeah um and you know one of the things that's come up quite a lot um through the course of this podcast is uh editors saying that they still get a huge amount of the majority of their books through literary agents having yeah. kind of been there and been one um do you have any like what would you say to kind of aspiring writers in in terms of getting one or what the what to look for in an agent yeah i think the the temptation is to um is to imagine that because they get you know tens of they, they get thousands of submissions a year um they couldn't possibly spot yours in the pile it's a sort of needle in a haystack problem so the first instinct is to try and make your submission as conspicuous as possible and so you know 
put a little kind of weird free gift in there and write your submission in green ink mm. and actually what you really want when you're an agent is something that looks professional that looks like it's high quality that looks like they know the market and they've done their research mm. Be- where people are clearly treating it as a a career that they want to be in in the long term and so actually some of the the first instincts of of authors who don't know the industry that well can can actually harm them mm, that's quite um, interesting we find that quite a lot um with our submissions pilot unbound certainly mm-hmm. is um and i absolutely know where it's coming from is uh you know you can almost play bingo with it which is uh you know asking people what their book is like um you know what you want is a really clear I see it sitting beside this and this. Yeah. Um, whereas I think people are understandably tempted to say it's something like it's Harry Potter meet Lord of the Rings yeah. or there's nothing like it before. Um, yeah. Whereas actually what you want from a glance is that kind of professionalism is to know your work and know the field and see where yeah. you fit in it. Um, and also I think one of the things we often ask people for is we don't just want a synopsis, we want a pitch, mm. um, which sounds like a small difference, but is actually asking someone to... Uh, you're not saying what happens you're you're saying i mean so a lot of agencies will ask for a synopsis as a way of um quickly measuring the style of the book against the structure of the book Mm. um and that saves them time and they will thank you in their head for saving them time but the pitch is not asking you for a summary it's asking you why should i read it Mm. um you know if you're doing a sort of um a psychological suspense what we really want to know is what you know. What's the mystery? What am I reading to find what's out? Why should I bother turning the page? Mm. Um, and I think people can kind of overcomplicate that. I think you know, if you go into a bookshop and there's a big table full of books, bookshops are these kind of treasure troves, and that's where it's going to end up. And if it's sitting in the middle of a pile of thirty really good books, like why would you take that one to the counter? Yeah, so it's like ask yourself the question of why you buy the books. You yeah, buy. just be the customer, you know. If, if you, you're, I mean, and, and actually, it will get shelved next to similar books whether you like it or not. Yeah. So if it's a book about, um, you know, a mother and a girl who goes missing, um, it will probably be among other books where other people's daughters have gone missing. <laughs> sure, you know, sure. So you're defining yourself against the market, and being able to do that's that's the hard part really Mm. and that's why you need to know the market it's like you can't you know you couldn't possibly be a career physicist who just ignored all the other physicists that's not how it works you know yeah and so were you kind of waiting for a book or an author to come along to be your kind of first client or first what what was that because certainly in a kind of uh, publishing house there's sometimes you get these two types of editors the one who commissions and the one who is uh, you know works diligently on the text and you know obviously there can be an overlap but was it the same at the agency were you kind of always aspiring to 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 create a list to find authors represent books yeah i was probably um i I was probably in a if anything a bit too much of a rush when i started (laughs) out you know i was very happy to take the bins out but i was also very clear that you know at some point i want to be working directly with authors and i want to be the person who's kind of driving um you know deals or right editing or whatever it is um so i would i would read the the submissions that the unsolicited submissions that came in um just like a, a few of my colleagues would um and we also had a, a quite unusually for an agency we employed a, a reader as well to sort of filter things for us 
So we had a good track record at Convalent Walsh of finding um, really high quality books in the submissions pile or what's sometimes called the slush right. pile. Um, and is that where the first book we're going to talk about came from? The Death of Bees by Lisa O'Donnell? Yeah, I mean, it just came, you know, someone's got to open the physical post. And uh, <laughs> I I sort of read the letter and just thought it was an intriguing letter and um, turned over. And the first page of the book, I read it and just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, I've got a, and it might not live up to it, but, you know, first pages don't get much better. Can I read it? To yeah, you? please do. Yeah. The- so basically, you know, you're opening the post and most of it's not that exciting. So she exciting. had sent a physical version in. Yeah, at one point we only took physical posts. Right, because most people would be the opposite, I guess, now. Yeah, now I think pro- I would assume now that CW Agency, as it's now called, um, probably only takes email yeah. submissions. Um, so the first thing I read when I opened it was... Um, Eugene Doyle, born 19th of June, 1972, died 17th of December, 2010, aged 38. Isabel Ann MacDonald, born 24th of May, 1974, died 18th of December, 2010, aged 36. Today is Christmas Eve. Today is my birthday. Today I am 15. Today I buried my parents in the backyard. Neither of them were beloved. There you go. I mean, how could you not keep breathing that? Right, like it's just the perfect opening. So, mm-hmm. um, and it has, uh, you know, survived the, you know, the, your looking at it, the editor who you sold it to looking at it, and a, you know, a whole team, yeah. and it is still there, roughly in the same form. Yeah, I think that was probably, you know, of course, as as with most debut novelists, it kind of went through edits and things. Mm. I think that was one of the pages that just stuck. It had no red mark. On it, <laughs> no, yeah. those. Um, and yeah, so uh, was this, this was the first book you ever sold. Mm. Um, so um, I sold it to William Heinemann with obviously with you know kind of help because um, it was it was my first ever deal. So I was getting you know a, a little bit walked through it sure. by by Claire and Patrick. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, a UK deal which we were very very pleased with. I think me and the author were both just so thrilled it was going to be published with William Heinemann and um we just about managed I think possibly with some like behind the scenes bullying by Claire to um hold back the the US rights and it, it you know it was a an okay deal for a, a debut unknown debut author yeah um and then when we sent it out in the states um they just absolutely lost it and it got into this kind of crazy auction <laughs> ended up being a a sort of six-figure wow. auction. So, um, it what, was that was a bit of a jump start. For, and it hadn't come out in the UK because obviously it did go on to win several prizes, the Commonwealth yeah. Book Prize and some, But it wasn't because of that prize that there was such hype. No, I think they just really responded. It, it's written in quite a filmic way. Mm. Um, Lisa is was trained as a screenwriter, and you can really tell it. It's very visual, very concrete. Um, a lot of the time there isn't a word wasted and she's very good at voice. And I think that the American publishing industry kind of got it instinctively. Um, I think they sort of latched on and and realized that it was something quite special. And you mentioned they're just being particularly happy to have sold it to Heinemann who you did sell it to. Yeah. You mean, is your, uh, like, um, as an agent or indeed as an author, you know, how important is it to be finding the right publisher rather than kind of any publisher? 
Well, I think you you can trick yourself into thinking that a publishing deal is the be all and end all, but really, it's um the whole thing's a, a sort of there's no end point with a book. You know that there aren't even that many markers, and actually, you know, it's when you're the author, the nice thing is to, of course, you need to celebrate when you get an agent, when you get a book deal. Like those things are really um, landmarks. important kind of landmarks, yeah. Um, but it's easy to forget that you know you're you're the point of it is not to trick a publisher into publishing your bad work. <laughs> the point of it is to you know make the book really good, find a publisher who really gets it, who's appropriate to it, and to find the right audience for the book. So I think if you, I I, I think most authors do, but but certainly every author should place a premium on finding a, a, the right appropriate publisher for their book. Mm. Um, no one wants to, to have to turn around two years later and say, we did everything we could, but it, it hasn't sold yeah. as well as we'd hoped. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think it is an art and not a science and, and people do need to probably consider that when they mm. when they're thinking about finding a publisher right. and eventually you made the transition from agent uh to commissioning editor yeah. um so you joined one world where you are now and the first one world book we're going to talk about is something completely different from <laughs> yeah. the death of bees um and this is the panama papers which is a, uh, the breaking the story of how the rich and powerful hide their hide their money by the two german journalists who uh, broke the story yeah, um, affectionately known as the Brothers Obermeyer. Yeah, who not have related. almost identical surnames with one <laughs> letter apart. Um, and I mean, you know, apart from being international bestseller, the Times Literary Supplement here on the front, the decade's most important book. I mean, that's yeah. quite something. It It is. I mean, it was one of those quotes where you almost think, do we dare use it? Is it too much? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose what he was driving at, so it was a guy called Edward Lutwak who... who um, wrote the quote for the TLS and what he was driving at was really um, everyone knows that there's this big financial system which is occluded from uh, national populations and the problem is that you can't prove it by nature of its secrecy Mm. so only a huge global leak like this will actually start to reveal the kind of networks of um, of ownership which, um, which govern the whole policy decisions yeah. by countries which um allow billionaires not to pay any tax mm. um, so and allow a lot of crime as well i mean a lot of people think that it's just about tax evasion and ta- you know we could do a lot of good in the world if we had a, a lot more taxes mm. if we had the taxes that we were owed as a population but i mean you know offshore companies are being used to hide rapists or you know serious organized crime the kind of stuff that brings a lot of misery to the world. Yeah, arm struggles, mafia, mine dealer, uh, uh, sorry, uh, diamond miners. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and it must have been, I mean, this is 11.5 million documents leaked that the two journalists worked through. Yeah. Um, but how did the desk, because the book had been published in German beforehand, how did it kind of come to, to land on your desk? I mean, it was it was all a bit crazy. So the, the, the leaks came out on a Sunday night, um, Edward Snowden somehow managed to find the pe- the unindexed page that they'd put up as a tester on right. Deutsche Zeitung, and um, so he managed to 
tweet about it like 13 minutes before the international launch. Right. But then suddenly all these papers across the world, like dozens of papers, uh, released all of these. It was, I mean, it was the most kind of concerted journalistic project in history. Yeah, because it was something like a team of uh, journalists working over a year in usher secrecy. Yeah, to- 400 journalists whose job it is to get a scoop. All working to, together and you yeah. know, coordinating, you know that. Um, so that was on the Sunday night. That was the Sunday night before the London Book Fair. Uh, I, when I arrived at the Book Fair on the Tuesday, someone mentioned that there was a book, which seemed insane to me. But it turned out they'd been actually writing it as they went through the investigation. So it was already out in Germany. It had gone to number two in the bestseller lists um, by the time I arrived at London Book Fair. And I knew that somewhere among the thousands of people in Earl's Court, there was the agent who had the rights to sell. <laughs> to sell the English language edition. So I spent a lot of that book fair just sort of running around trying to sort of chase down this um, incredibly uh, lovely and, and quite sort of tenacious agent uh, called Tanya Howarth, who um, she's done tons to bring German books into the English language. She was the original agent for Perfume by Patrick Sushkin, wow. for instance. Um, so lots of uh fraught discussions later i managed to acquire the the rights on the friday and were you kind of one amongst the masses like knocking on her door how to, are, yeah i mean i think i think a lot of people would have been put off by the potential legal problems yeah i think people would have been put off by the timing issue because it was a real issue yeah and you need to get um, it out real quick i guess yeah yeah so you got um, it on the friday eventually got it on the friday uh <laughs> And we hired four German translators to translate a quarter of the book each. We hired an incredibly patient copy editor to basically stitch it all together and to sort of iron out the, the stylistic differences. Yeah. We create, I actually, um, one of the first things I did was to create a, a house style guide for the book. Right. So um, we were running to a much abbreviated style guide that was um, specific to the kind of language and jargon in the book which saved some time. We proofread it in-house. I mean, we didn't get a lot of sleep. It, between acquiring it and publishing it was about seven weeks. Which is kind of astronomically quick in the world of publishing when you can be working yeah. on something for 9, 12, 18 months. Yeah, it'd be, really, it'd be really, really quick if it started off in English. Yes, but it, uh, it didn't. <laughs> which it didn't. <laughs> um, and went on to, you know, apart from those incredible quotes um and just be a really important book sell over fifty thousand copies for you so that yeah. must have been quite something as well yeah it, it was absolutely fantastic and um and it's one of those books that i think because the the phrase has become a bit of a touchstone yeah um, it it does just keep going i think yeah it's one of those books that you can totally imagine will be a reference point 10 years from now yeah you know it doesn't have a sell by date the way the journalistic scoop kind of does no. being the definitive account of this yeah um, and there's going to be you know i think netflix are trying to produce a series wow. at the moment and um it's kind of crying out for it because it was one of those things yeah. that happened and it was happening so quick that you could only grasp it you know it seemed to be getting away from you every time you read something about it there was yeah. something more and there's so many i mean the number of revelations that there are there's so much they had to leave out of the book right they kind of wrote it as a the as a sort of linear plot of you know basically what do you do when a whistleblower says they've got great information and then it turns out they've got 11 and a half million documents like what where do you, what do, you start? do how do you read them so that my favorite running theme in the book is that they keep um breaking their computer 
and then having to get an even more powerful computer to actually just manage the data. Right. Um, so they keep going back in and saying, you know, you got us a £3,000 computer. Yeah, we broke that too. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually they get effectively almost like a like a minor industrial server farm thing wow. behind a locked door and it's bolted to the floor. And one of my favorite little um, details is that they put uh, the tech security guy that they consult with puts glitter on the screws because you just can't fucking clear glitter up. So if anyone tries to tamper with it or anyone removes it and replaces it, there'll be glitter everywhere. Oh, how clever. It's such a good low-tech solution yeah, yeah. to this problem. Right. Um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a fun one. It was slightly yeah. stressful, but definitely worth I it. I can imagine. Um, and then the second book of nonfiction we're going to talk about is something wildly different. Yeah. Um, this is the A Field Guide to the English Clergy. Um, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, a taxonomy of the 50 maddest clergy of all time. Yeah. Um, all and English, obviously. Th- what a brilliant subtitle, um, which is a compendium of diverse eccentrics, pirates, prelates, and adventurers, all Anglican, some even practicing. Yeah. Um, and is, is it true this is, a, rather than a book that landed on your desk, this is someone that you went out and saw? Yeah, basically, I, I he was writing these amazing little tweets um, captions on uh, sort of caption biographies on Twitter, and he's um, a reverend himself as well. Yeah, so he was an ordinand at the time in the Church of England, just be, um, about to be ordained into the priesthood. And um, he, I think, at one point, it, which was a sort of a bit of hubris on his part, he said, "For every like I get for this tweet, I'll give you a mad vicar." <laughs> and it. Everyone absolutely loved the idea, so it got retweeted. Mm. Ended up getting something like 500 likes. And, I mean, bless him, he tried his best. <laughs> 500, yeah. He, but, he, you know, there were things like, you know, Robert Hawker, who invented the the Harvest Festival, was also a part-time mermaid. And he <laughs> excommunicated a, ma- uh, a cat for mousing on a Sunday. Um, God, you couldn't make it up. No, you really can't. Um, so I just, I basically wrote to him and just said, like, are any of these true? And he said, they're all true. Uh, so I said, "Okay, come and have a coffee, and we'll we'll yeah. we'll make it into a book." Uh, and that came out um, what, October eighteen. Yeah, just came out last October. It was a um, a sort of gifty Christmas book, right? And as a, a slightly um, you know from kind of world changing data leaks to <laughs> you know you've got a wide remit in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I just really like working on smart books. I really like mm. working on books that challenge your preconceptions. Mm. Um, and I suppose that can take different forms. Um, I mean, mo- most of the books I publish have a sort of a, a kind of social issue, which maybe sits behind the the headlines, um, looking at the kind of broader trends. So I've published books on like the public school system right. or um, the way that big tech uh, is naturally destabilizing to democracy and those kinds of things. The, the field guide was an unusual one for me. Um, but I also just knew that, I you know every now and again you just know in your heart that there's that people will take to it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it, a, it's it's such a warm idea, you know. Yeah. It's such a kind of pleasant and I, thing. I've avoided doing a Brexit book um because I think it's really hard to speak for other people. We have such different visions of what Britain is. Mm. Um and obviously the goalposts keep moving as well. So it, when you're trying to publish current affairs and you're trying ideally to acquire two years in advance, 
it's such a difficult thing. But I saw something here where I was like, actually, here's a version of Britain that people love and, and that kind of brings people together. Um, it's not necessarily a particularly conservative vision. You know, it's it's actually a a sort of proudly, proudly tolerant idea at, at its heart. It's this sort of, you know, fine, you know, if you're going to save souls, then who cares if you're wearing red high heels? Like, what a lovely message, you know? Yeah. And actually, the Anglican Church has been really good at that historically. Mm. I think probably slightly under-recognized and, uh, you know, it's, it, the, the, the existing narrative is that it's this sort of crumbling and out of date and irrelevant institution. But I think, you know, it's done a fair bit of good and there are quite a lot of people who are doing, you know, getting up every day and trying to help people who've just lost their benefits mm. or, or, you know, in the universal credit th- thing. And so, it's quite interesting to have been brought together by a young, digitally savvy yeah. uh, reverend on Twitter who's quite funny and I think smoking a cigar or something in his <laughs> yeah. profile picture. Yeah. You know, it's kind of... It. We had a, When we had our celebratory lunch for the... Um, when we did the book deal, um, we we just went to a pub and had a, a nice pub lunch. And uh, before we ordered our food, he he had a little bit of snuff on his hand and oh, right. you know, <laughs> bit of celebratory snuff. <laughs> and it has been book of the year for the Times, Mail on Sunday, BBC History magazine. Um, yeah, and you've slightly touched on it there. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you was: there is there something that you look for in a book particularly? Is there something you know um, unifying about all the books you look at? Is it uh, I mean, the social issue thing seemed to be closest to it. Yeah, I think I think um, I think that's the thing that that probably instinctively draws me. But there are the the form of the book could be so different. Um, what one was kind of a nice home in the sense that they will happily do a, a book that's you know very literary and um, almost on the brink of being an, an academic title. And they'll go for some stuff that's quite sort of punchy and commercial when it comes to yeah. uh, the non-fiction list. So, so that's quite broad, and I try to acquire across um, that spectrum on their behalf. Um, but that's the I I really like a good new idea, um, an idea no one's thought of before, or a way of thinking that no one's thought of mm. before, particularly when it comes to you know a problem that needs solving. Um, and I think you know it people think of current affairs and philosophy as almost being like opposite ends of a a really big spectrum but like actually you know they do have similarities in the sense that it's basically people trying to solve problems um, in very different ways and uh, you know I think lots of people uh, who listen to this uh, are people who hope one day to be published or to write a book I mean do you still acquire most of your books through um, agents do do you accept submissions what would you uh, you know, even as an author, where would yeah. you encourage people to be signing their manuscripts? I mean, I do. I, I myself do accept um, direct approaches. Um, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to try to get an agent because yeah. um, they, even if you've done lots of research, you know, they, they will inevitably because they spend fifty hours a week doing it. Yeah, um, they'll know the market really yeah. well, and then they'll know <laughs> who to target, and yeah. you know, um, and obviously they you know that there's other stuff that they can help with that you couldn't be expected to know about contracts and so on um i do i do look out for ideas that just seem interesting to me um think you know things that come up in the media talking points that people keep coming back to and and kind of gaps in the market 
um, as I perceive them. Um, I think if you're trying to get published in non-fiction, um, there are basically three quite mean questions that you have to ask about yourself. Mm. And if you can answer those, then you've got you've already got your yes or no. And it's basically, do you have the do you have sufficient platform to write the the idea? Is the idea novel or a novel take on a on a um, something that's sort of well established in the market, like World War Two histories or whatever? Uh, and can you write sufficiently well for the genre? Mm. I think ev- you know everyone in nonfiction needs to be a poet. I think it's absolutely fine if you're a journalist and you're writing a journalistic book. Um, but you do need to understand the the sort of constraints of the genre you're writing into. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it'd be really hard, I think, if you're if you're an, someone without qualifications to write a book on physics because there's so many tenured academics writing. Right. Really so this good is your first physics. point of: Do you have a platform? Do yeah. you have the the credentials? Yeah, essentially. Um, and there are a lot of ideas out there that don't require that you have a kind of formal qualification or whatever, sure. but. Um, which kind of ties in nicely with your second point, which is, are you approaching this material in a new, interesting way? Yeah. You know, we, the, the, there's probably <coughs> not a lot of space in the market for a new definitive history of the Second World War, unless mm. you're the world-leading academic in that area. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, you know, if if you really, if you can really do a better job than Anthony Beaver, then, I mean, go Great, for it. Like, your book. <laughs> but, I mean, he's really good. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and but, were, again, if you want to tell the story of World War Two th- th- uh, through... Hopefully not three. Not three, yeah. <laughs> but um, through, I don't know trees or 10 boys from yeah. your local school or something yeah. kind of interesting um you know it's kind of aspects in the material from a different angle yeah so what one of my favorite books on world war Two that came out in the last couple of years was called the german war by nicholas stargart it's published by the bodley head and um it looked at letters and correspondence and diary entries um just from this the side the german side that were non-combatants right so obviously the vast majority of the people who were um, uh, sort of implicitly supporting the Nazi state, um, it, though obviously they, they were themselves being kind of uh, oppressed, um, the vast majority of them were going about their daily lives and, and just trying to get through it. Mm. So he took all of these different characters, one or two that were corresponding with brothers or uncles who were on the front lines, but many of them were just being sent out of the cities to continue their education in the countryside. Uh, they were women who were trying to keep their shop running, even though they didn't have anything to sell. Um, and I've never read those stories before. Yeah, it's kind so, of, you don't really think of it, do you? Um, I I've, I'm, I know WGC Ball's got a great essay on it. I think it's Natural History of Destruction, right. where he talks about the, the German public being so guilty mm. after the war that they couldn't, then also grieve for the things that they'd lost yeah um but i see what you mean it's a kind of it slightly ties in what we were saying even about the crime novel or the fiction or that first, yeah. pa- first page what's the hook what's dragging you into this book why why would you pick it up in a bookstore yeah um as opposed to it's just well written or yeah because uh, you know. most of the people who read world war ii history have read a lot of world war ii yeah. history so you know that that's the way that you you mm. find your readership um mm. and actually the writing writing well enough it sounds like I, I think it could almost come across as sort of con- condescending you know there's some some genres have better writers than others but it, it's really about what I'm trying to drive at is 
different readers have different expectations. Um, the prose is there to serve a function. It's a it's a tool for communication. Mm. If what you really want to do is to help people see the the beauty in minutiae, um, and you're writing a kind of lyrical memoir, of course you need to have great facility with language and and to be able to kind of evoke things in a very poetic way. You know, if you if you're writing the Panama Papers, what you really need to do first and foremost is to be clear. Yeah. Secondly, is to be able to um, talk engagingly about things that could be quite dry, like tax. Yeah, yeah. Or, or abstract. Or, or, yeah, yeah, like, you know, data mining, mm. uh, really useful, not that fun. So, <laughs> you know, you've got to figure out ways to craft the narrative that mm. keep people reading. Um, but, but yeah, I think it, it should always be appropriate to the genre. And I'm going to ask you to change tax slightly now. Yeah. So to change hats, that was your editor okay. hat. I'm going to ask you to put on your author hat because um, you're the first person I've had on who has uh, done both. Yeah. Um, and can you talk a little bit about what do you, what do you, how do you see writing and editing? Are they two sides of the same coin? Are they completely different? Uh, does being an editor make you a better writer and vice versa? How do the two things kind of tie in? Um, I think it... I think it has helped me to be a, to take things a little bit less personally. I think when you're an author, it's sort of easy to forget when it's your day job and you work in the industry as an editor or, or whatever. Um, you know, I, I receive as an editor, say, 400 submissions a year or whatever it is from agents. Taking, what would you say, 12 of them? Yeah, and I'll take, I'll take about 12. So you, spend, you basically spend your whole life going, yeah, I mean, it's not really for me, is it? Mm. And, and actually what you don't want is to become kind of blasé about it because each of those people has probably spent, you know, two years of their life not going out and having fun because mm. they, they're devoting themselves to this one project very intensely. It's just, I mean, in terms of your actual output, it's like doing a PhD and everyone accepts that PhDs are going to take someone five years. Um, but people, we expect people to, to turn a book out in a year or two. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of work. So I think it's easy uh, when you don't know the industry that well to sort of, if someone says they don't want the book, you almost take it as a rejection of you as a person, you know. Yeah, um, which is not what's happening. No, it's not It's not really what's happening. Um, I suppose, I think that most authors kind of arrive there anyway. It's a, it's a, a part of being yeah, professional. A and, thick and skin or that. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of part and parcel of... Um, of kind of learning how to be a career writer rather than a someone who writes for pleasure. Yeah. Um, Certainly one of the pieces I got, a um, piece of advice I got very early working in the editorial department was um, if you ever take joy from rejecting someone, you shouldn't be doing this job. Yeah. Because you need to think very carefully about that person has either sent it to you as a publisher or to you as an individual. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's something, again, you, you know, it's one of those... Uh, almost cliche rejections of it's not quite right for us yeah. but there is truth in those words in the sense that you know there are one world books or or alex books yeah that uh will or should find a home elsewhere um, oh yeah yeah so it's i mean i think that's a big part of it and also dispassionately self-editing um mm. when you spend your whole life um pointing out little minor redundancies in syntax and things like that um it's very hard to then let yourself off the hook right when you're writing yeah i think at the level of sentence at the level of story mm. you um you just naturally become a little bit less tolerant of your own idiosyncrasy when you're reading back yeah i know um, that feeling <laughs> but you need to i mean it, it, that whole thing of you know leaving it in a drawer it, well i think once you finish writing anything 
if you want to make it better go away and come back and then it will be unfamiliar to you and it won't feel like it was you you know you who kind of sweated blood who wrote it Mm. it will feel like oh here's that thing i did you know in the same in the same way as anything i mean if you do diy projects like you might have just put up a shelf and it looks really really crappy but you're so proud that you did it yeah and then obviously a year later you look at the shelf and you're like i can't believe the books even stand up on that you know it's one of the things that it's it's very hard to convince someone even yourself of that the thing you've just finished and are really proud of yeah. isn't quite ready for the world. Yeah. And I guess like, you know that is one of those really old uh, writing tips, which is put mm. it away, come back to it. And you're kind of giving yourself the distance to approach it as an editor yeah. rather than as the person who you say sweat blood on it. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's, it's just a sort of logical conclusion that at the moment that you finish the book, you wrote it in exactly the way that you thought would make it perfect. Mm. Um you know if if you'd thought otherwise you would have changed it and then that w- you would still be finishing the book that you yeah. at the time think is pretty much mm. perfect um you need to kind of go away and and sort of change a bit and yeah i someone said to me once um uh not all great editors are great writers but all great mm. writers are great editors because you have to yeah. be able to edit yourself first and foremost um, yeah i w- i would agree with that i mean i, I think there's the this sort of romantic myth of like you know i i had some opium and then lay down on a coat, couch and then i just sort of came scribbled up off a novel plan. yeah yeah it's not really helpful to anyone no that um, kind of narrative yeah but it i mean it it's only helpful in the sense that it mystifies the role of the writer as this sort of you know prophetic mm. isaiah type figure who who has some sort of inspiration yeah um i think inspiration is actually a really bad heuristic um when you're when you're thinking about what makes good writing yeah that idea of where do you get your ideas from is kind of an unhelpful way of approaching it because it it's supposed to sound inspiring for for aspiring writers but it's not really because it takes away your agency yeah it seems unattainable it seems kind of impossible you have to just wait and like hope that a a god sort of like touches the top of your head with his thumb I can't remember. It might be Philip Larkin or someone who said something like Habit wrote a million more books than inspiration. Yeah. Which I think is, you know, uh, it is about sitting down and doing it as much as having ideas. Yeah. Um, and, and I also, know, sorry. So, I was just going to say, uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, um, he would every morning, basically pretty much before he was allowed breakfast, he would get up and write a poem. Mm. And I mean, he churned out a lot of bad poems, but he, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a, sitting there and doing it. Yeah, sitting there and doing it and actually just, you know, if you if you exercise that that kind of writing muscle to use the, the common metaphor, like it does get powerful. And when you do have a good idea, you know what to do with it. You have the actual like staying power to keep sitting on the chair in the mm. third hour to get it done while it's all in your head. Mm. I think my um, my boss John Mitchinson told me a great story about the fantastic writer and his old um, sadly now pirate friend Dermot Healy oh, who yeah. um came into the pub one evening and you know there's kind of a fisherman sitting down at the end of the pub and he says oh how, how are the fish bite and he says oh grand how's the novel going or, oh grand and you know that kind of equating of work yeah uh, is a really um, appropriate way to you know kind of putting of writing on a pedestal is not yeah. a kind of helpful way to get writing done. No. Um, 
thank you for that. Um, and your first novel, Glass, was 2016, long listed for Desmond Elliott, winner of the yeah. Betty Trask. Um, yeah. And then your last, most recent book is Let Us Be True, which is 2018, um, which is yeah. a kind of love story set in Paris in the 1950s after World War II. Yeah. Um, two very different books, but yeah, kind I of guess approaching so. the, a, a similar question, I think you said. Oh. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that they're... Um, they're both about you know how do we make our way in the world and how do we um how do we kind of keep keep up our ideals in a world that necessitates compromise mm. so one of them's a um the glass is sort of first person and it's in, told in this quite quirky voice um but it attacks that problem very straight on it's a it's a um almost like with dostoevsky's the idiot or something like that um or, or even a confederacy of dunces, you've got this character who's sort of stubbornly sticking to his guns. Mm. Gunter, and, and it, just in case anyone hasn't come across, so it's Gunter Glass, who is a yep. uh, window cleaner and aspires to clean the windows of the shard. Yeah. Which is just a lovely... <laughs> and I mean, I'm guessing Gunter Glass, you know, obviously very one letter away from yeah. Gunter Glass, who, who, you know, thinking like the Tin Drum and books like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a... I mean, it, it's... Uh, I wouldn't uh, want it to be like the the one lens that people use to interpret the book, but mm. I, what I wanted to draw attention to was the idea that it that this wasn't um, a literary realist book. Mm. You know, this is a book that kind of exaggerates and uh, and makes its characters a sort of um, a capacious kind of vessel for certain ideas and um, ways of staging arguments. Um, so, in, in a way, that that was the the sort of crossover point but i i mean i don't think glass would be probably the appropriate lens to um (laughs) to interpret the works of the great german author sure um and finally one last question so we've talked about lots of books you have published but as a reader um as someone who likes books as has there been something in the last couple of months or in the last year that you've really read and loved that you wish you kind of could have published or yeah well so I mean, as a current affairs editor, I'm the one I'm probably supposed to say is Fire and Fury. It's, I mean, it's such a good read. Um, I absolutely loved reading it, and uh, and I have to hold my hand up and say part of that is the just the Schadenfreude of actually it is as much of a uh, train wreck as it looks like from the outside. I mean, as a, as a reader, I, I'm I probably um, read quite a bit of you know literary fiction and and things that I don't necessarily commission. I absolutely loved um, Sabrina. Uh, by Nick Donasso yeah. which was shortlisted for the yeah. oh no I think it was longlisted for the, right. for the Booker Prize the, the first graphic novel ever to be so. yeah um, I just thought it was, it was a really beautiful kind of melancholy look at the human consequences of these kind of bizarre seismic movements on mm. the internet and quite, um, it could be a complete game changer I mean you know the Booker's opened up to America but yeah. if it opens up to the graphic as well that's quite a step yeah and I think you know it's it's almost become a truism that there are so many interesting things happening with with graphic um mm. novels that do go under recognized in the sort of the mainstream uh, mm. of literary criticism i mean i i think the the choices that he's made um in the way that he draws his figures are just kind of fascinating and you know you could you could do a degree on like why he did that book the mm. way he did it mm. but i thought it was um I thought it was beautiful and really uh it it kind of um stuck with me partly because it was quite jarring. I mean it, it's it's not a particularly happy story but it it made concrete a lot of 
very vague feelings I had about the way that the internet sort of mm. hounds people or creates conspiracy theories or whatever. Yeah. It's that kind of wonderful thing you sometimes stumble across in a book where someone said the thoughts that you haven't found words for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, articulate. I mean, articulating this moment, which seems so full of uh, confusion and um, really kind of almost stuck without a grand narrative of like, what do we want liberal democracy to be or what do we want capitalism to be or whatever um it's very hard to accurately describe that level of ambiguity and confusion so i think he did an an incredible job there and it was a huge creative risk um and i also want to just quickly mention uh, this is not one book obviously i'm I'm completely (laughs) going outside the brief we can uh, talk about all the books (laughs) but um i love the i am dynamite the superdo um biography of nietzsche Mm. It was just uh again a new take on a yeah a known subject so well. it was so readable and um kind of at the same time didn't let him off um yeah didn't idolize him or it didn't idolize him um but it was very sympathetic at the same time um I spoke to a couple of people who who've read it as well, and someone said that you know the the thing that she does slightly let him off the hook for, which I can see is that um he kind of set some of the intellectual foundations for for sort of Nazi ideology or whatever. Yeah. Um, she sort of seems to think, you know, that's not part of his plan at all. But, mm. I mean, he did definitely created a monster when he was talking about, you know, the strong and the sur- almost a sort of social survival of the fittest. Mm. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's such a seductive idea. Yes, but um, not necessarily a healthy one. Mm. I, there are a lot of things that don't kill you that make you weaker. I, I don't know. I, you <laughs> yeah. know, the problem with aphorisms is that they're they're kind of truthy. They they're yes. part, they're always partly true. There's a truthiness to them. Yeah, in their kind of succinctness and yeah, yeah. but they never tell the whole truth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought the the management of the narrative by Superdo was just fantastic, mm. and it was it was so for something that's discussing some, I guess, quite highfalutin ideas. It felt so kind of readable. Join me next week when I'll be talking amazing fiction from around the globe with James Roxburgh from Atlantic, the editor behind books like When I Hit You, and my sister, the serial killer, longlisted for this year's Booker Prize. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter or whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.